some prayerful consideration, I, I landed on, on John's epistles because he writes strikingly in, in, um, this, in this first epistle especially. He, he exhorts the church to love, to righteous living, to defend the truth, and to live and to walk as children of light in order to overcome the world. So 1 John chapter 1 will be in verses 1 through 4 this morning because as we begin studying, these first four verses are just an excellent introduction. John lays the groundwork for what he's going to cover as he begins looking at the person and the work of Christ. He, he tells the church that you must understand the deity of Christ. He says, I'm going to be a personal eyewitness of the Messiah, and I'm going to tell you how you ought to live your lives in light of the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And in these first four verses, we see two times the phrase, so that. It's the Greek word hina, H-I-N-A, and what that is is a purpose clause. It's a word where, as John uses it in this introduction, he's really setting forth what is his purpose throughout this entire letter that will stretch five chapters. So, so let's look at our text, let's read God's word, and then we'll ask him to bless our time together. Would you please stand with me? As we read the scripture, this is God's word, it's holy, it's inerrant, it's inspired, it's God-breathed by his Holy Spirit, and every word is true. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested... And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you that the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is God's word. May he write it upon our hearts for the glory of his name. You may be seated. Would you join me now and let's go before the Lord in a word of prayer. Our God, you are exalted in the heavens. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Splendor and majesty are before you. The angels in your presence cry out, Holy, holy, holy. And Lord, as we come before that awesome and holy presence, in a way we cry out like Isaiah, I am undone. Because we are among a people of unclean lips. But oh God, what great salvation, what great hope we have in Christ. How we rejoice, Lord, that you chose to send your beloved Son to take on flesh, to submit himself, to be obedient, to learn obedience even to the point of death on a cross so that he could bear our curse. 
Lord, may our eyes be fixed on the glory and the righteousness and the love of Christ today. Lord, as we desire to sit under the authority of your word, we understand and acknowledge that if we come to the word in our own strength, we will fail utterly. We will not be sanctified. We will not be conformed to the image of Christ. But if we come to your word with humble and pure hearts, and if you so choose to move by the powerful working of your spirit, Lord, you will sanctify us in the truth. So God, that is our prayer. That is our desire. That is our great goal as we're gathered, is that we worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, would you take your word and plant it deep in our hearts, and by your spirit, would you cause it to bear fruit? Lord, would we bear the fruit of repentance? Would we go and bear much fruit of holy and righteous living? May we be proclaimers of the gospel. May we be defenders of the truth. May we love people and love souls. Lord, may we stand firm in difficult days. Help us, O oh God, to look to the example of our Messiah of our Savior, and while being attacked, may we utter no threats, may we not revile in return, but may we suffer in a way that pleases you and, and glorifies you. Lord, our great need is to be sanctified, and our great goal is that you would accomplish that work by your Spirit and for your glory. Lord, would you help us? We are feeble and frail. Our minds are weak and they're distracted. Our bodies may be failing in, in certain ways, and, and yet, Lord, we come before you with a great hope. We come before you, Lord, with a great expectation. Because with man, nothing is possible. But with God, all things or possible. So Lord, sanctify us, teach us, correct us, reprove us, rebuke us. And do all that, Lord, not that we would receive any praise or accolades or glory, but so that you would receive all praise and honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever. For you are worthy. Proud this in Christ's name. Amen. So John, again, is the beloved apostle. That, that name stems from how he refers to himself in his gospel account. The gospel of John and these epistles are written by the same man. And in John 19, at the scene of the crucifixion of Christ, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In John chapter 13, around the table at the Last Supper, when the Lord instituted the very Lord's Supper that we will remember today, John again referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the author of this letter. And I think in part because of his recognition as the apostle of love, many take this epistle and they just immediately, because there are flavors of love of the brethren in this, they say, this is the epistle of love. And it is. 
John, John talks extensively about loving one another and how that identifies us as followers of Christ. But this letter is about so much more than just love of the brethren. John writes of the importance of the church not loving the world. He tells us that we must overcome the world, that we must not be given over to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. He says that we must walk as children of the light. We must pursue holy, righteous, set-apart living. We must not live as those who are darkened in their understanding because they have not come to know the true light who is Jesus Christ. John talks about the importance of the truth, standing for the truth, proclaiming the truth, defending the truth, and making our stand against all attacks of the world, in, through, by, and for the truth of God's Word. Ultimately, I think we can conclude from this epistle that when we, the church, stand against any heresy, and there are many heresies in our day, and we can take John's instruction and apply it to any heresy we stand to battle, and this is what John says. We must have proper knowledge of Christ. We must have a devoted pursuit of righteousness. We must faithfully love our fellow saints. We must firmly reject all falsehood. And we must victoriously overcome the world and worldliness. In a nutshell, that is 1 John. Those five themes run throughout the letter. They come up time and again every passage we look at will have at least one of those themes represented, if not multiple of those themes, because that is how you defend against heresy. That is how you overcome worldliness, is all of these things coming together. Now, before I go too far, let me give you a little bit of background, set the scene of of 1 John just a little bit. Um, It's generally believed and agreed upon that John wrote this after his gospel account, somewhere around AD 90. So in between writing his gospel account and in between his writing of Revelation. During that time, John was serving as kind of an apostolic pastor in the church of Ephesus. So he was pastoring probably one local church and serving in an apostolic leadership over the churches in that region of Asia Minor. He doesn't identify a single audience, but knowing what John was doing, we can surely know to whom he is writing. He's writing to these churches that he is serving as a leader, as a pastor, as an example, as one who is to show them and be a witness for Christ. Those churches, dear friends, were living in difficult days. There was an emperor of Rome during that time by the name of Domitian. Domitian was a man who hated Christians. He hated the way. He persecuted those who were of the true faith. In addition to that persecution, this is that period again around A.D. 90 where they were getting, the, the church was really kind of getting its feet under itself. So, so Christ had come, his earthly ministry had been fulfilled, he'd went to the cross, he had rose from the dead, he had returned to the right hand of glory, and now some 60 years or so had passed. 
And in that time, what started to happen, and you just see it throughout history, that it just grows and grows and grows, but false teachings and false religions and other heretical movements were becoming more and more prevalent. And so John writes to encourage and to exhort and to press on these churches in those difficult days. So, so we said that there's these false religions and, and heresies that are abounding. I want, want to identify the one primary heresy that John likely had in mind, and it was this false religion known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was believed to be kind of a, a conglomeration of a lot of different religions, kind of pulling to together with the dominating idea that the spiritual realm was good, it was pristine, it was pure, it was right and just and holy, and everything physical was bad. So, so, so that was one of their predominant ideas. MacArthur wrote about Gnosticism. He said, as a result of this idea, these false teachers, although they would attribute some form of deity to Christ, they denied his true humanity to preserve him from evil. They added to the scripture to make Jesus in their own image, in the image that they desired. But there was another heresy that kind of fell in with the Gnostics as well. And MacArthur said it's also that they claimed an elevated knowledge. They said that there was a higher truth that was only known to those who were, you know, in the know, you could say. That they were enlightened to deep things. And so they denied the true Christ and they denied the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. That's what John was up against. That was what he was writing about. That's what these churches faced. And dear friends, do you see that we see similar battles today? The greatest battle that you face today is the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God. Because if we can agree on an authority, then the playing field is level. People may not agree, but if we agree about the authority and the veracity of Scripture, the playing field is leveled. And people might say, yeah, that's all true, but I'm going to go to hell anyway. Or they will affirm the truth, they will repent of their sin, and they will come to Christ. Clearly, Gnosticism was a different gospel. It was another gospel. It needed to be resisted and rejected. So again, it's not insignificant to think about John's letter as a whole as to a response to falsehood. John and the believers of that day are facing this, this great opponent because this was a common and beloved belief of the day. And what was John's instruction? Believe upon the true Christ. Love the brethren. Resist the world. Reject falsehood and live righteously. Simply, John's instruction was live a basic, holy Christian life. Live the Christian life as revealed in the pages of Scripture. Now, John didn't teach these believers who looked to him, he didn't teach them to contextualize the truth so they could reach a certain or specific demographic or people. John encouraged genuine love, but he did not concern himself with being focused about being winsome and, and getting a foot in the door with the world. His concern was with standing upon the truth. 
and proclaiming Christ. John's focus was that the church must live as saints, those who are called out, those who are separate, those who are marked out from the world by the way that they live. They must know their Savior, they must love one another, and they must reject worldliness. And again, we live in an age very similar to John's day. And so these instructions are going to be so practical. Scripture is always relevant. And so John, just as he instructed those churches in his day, will instruct us as well. So coming to the text, dear friend, do you see that John starts off this letter focusing on the most important, the first, and the ultimate thing? He establishes the deity, the life, and the work of Christ, and he shows how that work of Christ brings us into fellowship with him, and that fellowship produces joy, produces transformed lives that showcase the joy of Christ. John aims to stabilize the churches by stabilizing their belief of the truth. That's what he comes back to. He comes back to the truth of who Christ is and what he did and how that affects our lives today. John reminds them, I was an eyewitness. My testimony is true. I was there. I saw him. I touched him. I, I saw the, nail, the, the holes from the nails in his hands. I've seen Jesus. I know that he is the Messiah. So to kind of direct the rest of our time, just narrow down to kind of one, one purpose, one, one sentence to, to zero in on where we're going. And we must see that to have fellowship and complete joy in the Lord, we must live in light of the deity, the personhood, and the work of Christ. This true knowledge of who Christ is, what he accomplished, and how it impacts us is the key to fellowship and joy in the Lord, fellowship with and joy in the Lord. True knowledge will lead us, if you are in Christ, if his spirit is in you, increasing knowledge of who Christ is will lead you to a deeper fellowship with the Lord and a greater joy in him. John begins with his eyes toward Christ. Dear friends, we must do the same. First thing we want to see is the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ at the beginning of verse 1, John says, what was from the beginning? Now again, we, we know who John is. He's the same man who wrote the gospel of John. The gospel of John is kind of like the source material, and, and these epistles are kind of like a commentary on the gospel of John. So when John writes what was from the beginning, we must go back to John chapter 1. Because that tells us who was from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being which has come into being. So when John says what was from the beginning, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ, the Word. He's saying that Jesus is God, the light of eternity, the one in whom, for whom, and through whom all things are created. The deity of Christ is where we start. 
In Revelation chapter 1, again, this is the same author writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. Revelation 1 verse 8, the Lord says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, the God Almighty who reigns. And whether or not people want to, we know that at one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, though they may not want to, but we know that all creation must live in light of this fact. All must submit to the fact that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, that God is the ruler, the sustainer, the sovereign over all creation. And he operates by his own authority and according to his own rules. Proper worldview is critical to living out your Christian life today. A proper worldview beginning with the creative power of God. Beginning with understanding the person and the nature and the power of God. That is critical to the Christian life today. And dear friends, it's critical to your children They're going to go into the world one day, and they need to be armed with the knowledge and the understanding of who God is, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that Jesus was in the beginning with God, and he was God. This is God's world. It operates according to his rule. So John establishes the deity of Christ, and do you see that the deity of Christ also establishes then the authority of Christ. Under his deity is his authority. Because he is God, he is authoritative. And that means he's authoritative in what he says, and what he says is true. Okay, so so follow this path. Jesus is God, therefore he is authoritative, and therefore if he's God, all that he says is true. Jesus said, I am the Son of God, and I am the Son of Man. That immediately attacks at the heresy of the Gnostics that he couldn't be both spiritual and fleshly. Rather, Jesus says, I'm truly God and truly man, as Sproul would say. Some of us would say fully God and fully man, but Sproul would tell us that we're wrong to say that. Truly God and truly man. Point of consideration here is that as we defend against error, dear friends, do you see that we must be proclaiming the truth? We're not just always backing up and playing defense and hoping we give enough of an answer to soothe the the attackers of the truth. Rather, we go play offense. Proclaim the truth. John says, what was from the beginning? Jesus Christ, he is God. He is man. We do need a systematic understanding of Scripture to apologetically defend the hope of our calling But we need to defend the hope of our calling with words and defenses that are overflowing with the truth. We don't merely refute error. We replace the error with the truth. So the deity of Christ. Then John talks about the life of Christ, the personhood of Christ. What we have heard, verse 1, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
and the life was manifested, and we have seen and we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and then was manifested to us. So, so now John is going at the heretical teaching of the Gnostics, that Jesus couldn't have been flesh if he was God. What does John 1.14 say? The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. You see the A to B to C connection. What was from the beginning, then take that back to John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word became flesh. Think about Paul's instruction in Philippians 2. Although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Jesus is God. And John gives these ways that he saw and experienced and witnessed the personhood of God, of Jesus. He said, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, and what we have touched with our own hands. Do you see here, very first of all, that John is using a plural pronoun. What we have seen, what we have heard, what we have looked at, what we have touched. He's following that biblical pattern of establishing the truth on the basis of witnesses. This is not just his personal experience, his personal opinions, his emotional view of who Jesus is. He's saying there are many witnesses to the personhood of Jesus Christ. He says we've seen him, we've heard him. We even witnessed his resurrected body after the crucifixion. We saw that he came back to life. This is not just a story. This is not just the imagination of, of one man or even a few men. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Physical, bodily form. A physical, bodily resurrection. Jesus is the Christ. But Jesus is the Son of Man. We need to understand that a proper biblical defense always comes with multiple scriptures. Do you see how we cannot just take John's word for it? John doesn't even tell us just to take his word for it because he's bringing in other witnesses. It's all confirmed also by the Apostle Paul. It's confirmed by Peter and, and 1 Peter. And so we see that to defend the truth, we need to not just root ourselves in one single passage. That's where you end up with heresy. That's where you end up with falsehood and things that are not truth when, when people just latch on to one verse or, or even one phrase in a verse and then they go build an entire theology based on that one thing. No, all of Scripture comes together and agrees. And John gives us an example of that here. We also ought to note that, that our opponents will do kind of what John is refuting here regularly. John, John shows that this is such a verifiable truth. There's really no way to argue the personhood of Jesus because there's all these witnesses that have seen it. And yet what the enemy will do, what, what heretics will do, what our, our attackers will do is they will just use their feelings and their emotions and, and intentionally vague generic statements to undermine the truth so they can press their own agenda. 
If there's not specificity, that should raise a red flag. You, you should be able to be specific in something as important as, as heaven or hell for all eternity. So we must fight and argue with specifics. John will have none of, of this refuting that which is easily, verifiably true. Dear friends, the church is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We're to be proclaimers of the truth. We're to hold out the word of the truth, and that means all of it. That means we must hold to the fact that every word of Scripture is true from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. Every word is inspired by God, and every word is true. And we make our defenses in light of that. We don't twist the Lord's word to make it work with what we see in life. We evaluate all of life through the lens of the truth of Scripture. Verse 2, John says, the life was manifested. He says it was, he was with the Father and was manifested to us. That word manifested always intrigues me. It's a Greek word that talks about something that was once hidden that has now been revealed or made apparent or made clear. It's something that was not seen that is now seen and visible. But Vine's dictionary also says when this speaks about a person, he says that it speaks of someone being revealed in their true character. The life was manifested. Jesus was revealed in his true character, in true righteousness, in holiness, in being the true Son of God. But the true fullness of his character is that he was also fully man. He, he was a man in the flesh. The Word became flesh. So now let's think about, John gives kind of three, three definite descriptions here. He says, the Word of life. Then he says, the life was manifested. And he says, we came to testify and to proclaim to you the eternal life. The Word of life, the manifested life, and the eternal life. Jesus was always the plan of God unto salvation. In redemptive history, there was one focal point, and it was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John 1, 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the source of life speaking the world into existence. He is the sustainer of life. He holds all things together by the word of his power. And dear friend, Jesus is the giver of eternal life through the blood of his cross. This is the Christ, the word, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew Henry wrote of this, that Christ is not just a, a vocal word, but he's a vital word, the living word who was from eternity. You're not just saying a name. You are proclaiming the one who existed from eternity past, who took on flesh, who went to the cross so that you could be given eternal life. And in an age of confusion, dear friends, we must have this high view of Jesus. We must have this 
clear view of him. We must have this authoritative view of him. And dear friend, let me encourage you, not only do you need to have that view, but it needs to be a view that you pass on to one another. That, that you show your brothers and sisters in Christ the glory and the majesty of the Savior. One way that you do that is by living a life that displays the transformative power of Christ. And again, to point to parents again, we must show this high view of the Christ to our children, both in word and in deed. So Jesus is deity. He is man. We've seen the deity of Christ, the life of Christ. But then John comes in verse 3 really to the so what kind of of the passage. We, we see the work of Christ. So the deity, the life, and then the work of Christ. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see that this is not just an academic study? This is not just a worldly debate from two sides of an argument where John wants to make an academic argument against the Gnostics of his day. No, John is defending the deity and the personhood and the work of Christ because he's going to proclaim the Messiah to the end that souls are saved. So let's take that latter statement first, and we really need to build verse 3 kind of in reverse. What we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you also we do so that you may have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son is John's ultimate goal. How does this fellowship happen? It's where the work of Christ comes in. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You have fellowship because you're reconciled. You have fellowship because at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You were an enemy. You were at war. You had no desire to come to Jesus as Christ and Savior. And yet he died. And he reconciles you to the Father through the blood of his cross. If you hear nothing else today, dear friend, hear that you have life because of the reconciling work of Jesus at the cross. That's the only way to be reconciled to God. It's the only way to have fellowship with the Father is to come to Him through the work of the Son. John gives these details of witnessing Jesus' life only because He is going to proclaim that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that you come to Him by faith and repentance. That is the purpose of this defense of the truth, salvation of souls. And when you think about fellowship. John says our fellowship is, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What type of fellowship had John witnessed between Father and Son? John 17. You guys knew that that's what was coming. John 17, verse 3, Jesus praying, the high priestly prayer. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life that they know you and that they know Christ. That is true fellowship. But look further in that prayer, verses 20 and 21. Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world would believe that you sent me. That's the fellowship that John had witnessed. When John says, we want you to have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God the Father and Jesus Christ His Son, that's what he's pointing to. The perfect union of Father and Son on display in the high priestly prayer. The goal of salvation is not just that you skirt by God's judgment and barely make it into heaven, and you sit in the outer courts and you just occasionally catch a small glimpse of His glory. No, dear friends, you are united to Christ. You are a joint heir with Jesus. When the Lord looks at you, He sees His perfect, precious, holy Son. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, and that they know me whom you have sent. Have fellowship with the Lord, dear friend, is to know Him. To know his character, to know his power, to know his attributes, and to see and to seek his glory. If you have fellowship with the Father, that is what that fellowship means. You know him intimately, closely now. Not perfectly, but you're increasing in knowledge and understanding of the Lord and that vision of his holiness that seeing His glory drives you to one singular pursuit, and that is being conformed to the image of His Son. Romans 6, 5, Paul says, If we become united to Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. That is the end. That is what Christ died for. If you have this union, and if you have this fellowship with him, how can you return anything other than joyful obedience and devotion? It's not rote law-keeping. It's that you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love your neighbor as yourself, and then you desire to keep all of the Lord's commandments. And all of this flows out of the work of Christ because you have been made alive together with him. So that's one aspect of the work of Christ. But John mentions another too, right? He says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. John writes, so that expressly, singularly, so that the saints might be in union, that they might be united, that they might walk in the Christ-earned fellowship that is truly theirs. This is not just a flesh-level friendship. This is a spiritual connection, a spiritual union of those who serve the same king and are heading in the same direction toward the same eternal home and kingdom. 
And this doesn't mean that we are always completely uniform in our thoughts and our likes and our dislikes. But it means that we have a joined, united sense of purpose as saints who serve the same master. We have the same purpose because we serve the same king. Think about what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. Unity. Communion. Fellowship. We become more like one another in the depths of our souls because we are all heading towards and becoming more like the same master. This type of fellowship, this type of unity should be prized and pursued by everyone who calls himself a saint of the Lord. And it should be especially prized and especially pursued by those of us who join together with one another in a local congregation. Not just because we want to all think the same thing and never have to argue, but because we want to enjoy what Christ has purchased for us with his own blood. When you don't get along, when you bite and devour one another, you are not enjoying the union of Christ. You're walking in the flesh. And that doesn't mean uniformity of thought. But it means we will all be being conformed to the same image. So you will be becoming more like one another because you're becoming both more like Christ. Members of one kingdom. The rules and standards and even the works of that kingdom are all the same. We have fellowship because of the work of Christ. So to recap, we've seen the deity, the life, the work of Christ. And lastly, in verse 4, I want to point you to the joy of Christ. The joy of Christ. John writes, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So that's fascinating. Just read that again. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. I'm writing all these things to you, John says, so that my joy will be complete, that it'll be perfected, that it will increase. Why is John's joy so wrapped up in teaching and proclaiming Christ? Well, the reason it is is because of what Mike read earlier for us. Think about John chapter 3. Think about those words of John the Baptist. John said there, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John was the forerunner of Christ. And when he saw the Messiah come on the scene and begin that public earthly ministry, John says, my joy has been made full because the Messiah is here. But John didn't stop there. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. The apostle 
has his joy made complete by proclaiming Christ because his joy is in making Christ known. His joy is in his decreasing and Christ's glory increasing. Is that your heart? Is that your pursuit in life? Not just in proclamation, but do you pursue personal pleasures and gratification to the detriment of the Lord's glory so so you are increasing and he is decreasing? Or is your your joy made complete when you humbly lay aside all desires of the flesh and you pursue Christ and you glorify him with a life that's set apart? You don't give in to sin and temptation. You don't make excuses for your sin. You live a disciplined life whereby you study His Word, you know His Word, and you know the God of the Word. It's not just about knowing facts. It's about knowing the author of Scriptures and having your lives transformed. This is the heart of the true follower and disciple of Christ. Our joy is complete when the Master increases. His glory is our joy. Nothing Dear friend, hear this. Hear this. Nothing is more antithetical to the Christian life than selfish ambition and vain glory. If you want to live a life opposed to the glory of God and what you're called to walk, if you don't want to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, pursue selfish ambition and personal vain glory. There's nothing more unchristlike than pursuing your own gratification, your own pleasures. In Christ is life eternal. He gives us life so that we can experience it and know it in perfect abundance. This life in Christ is freedom from the tormenting power of sin. It's freedom from the shackles and being enslaved to the master of sin, Satan himself. This life in Christ produces joy because it reminds us that this world is not our hope. Life in Christ reminds us that there's an eternal weight of glory being stored up for us in heaven. Life in Christ is joyful because as the psalmist said in Psalm 73 verse 28, the nearness of God is my good. You say, how does that point to Christ? Well, Ephesians 2.13 says that we who were far off have been brought near By the blood of Christ. Being in Christ brings you near, and the nearness of God is your good. Dear friend, pursue Him. Make Him your great joy, your great pursuit. Devote your life to Him. John begins with a thunderous opening in this letter, not so much with dramatic writing, but with the glorious and weighty truth and joy of the gospel. So may we pursue fellowship with the Lord through Christ. May that fellowship with the Lord through Christ result in joyful communion and fellowship with our brethren, with our fellow saints. And then may our joy be made full and complete as we proclaim the goodness and the truth of Christ. 
He must increase and we must decrease. Let's pray. Lord, we come and we ask that you would write your word upon our hearts today. Lord, there's so much truth. There's so much goodness. There's so much to be learned and to be taken from your word. And we just ask that you would give us clarity and full understanding of your truth. Would you grant us repentance where we have failed? Would you grant us encouragement where we are struggling? Would you press us onward? Fix our eyes upon the the prize of the upward call of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that your word would find a place in our hearts today, and we pray this for your glory in your church forever and ever. In Christ's name, amen.